Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we have been reading of the Apostle Paul, uh, before that known as the Saul of Tarsus, and he was converted by the power of Jesus Christ, and we are continuing the story here in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verse 10 through the beginning of verse 19. Before we come to God's Word, let us ask the Lord to help us understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have been pleased to reveal Yourself to us and to record that revelation of Yourself in Your Word preserved by the Holy Spirit. And we pray for the Spirit of truth to be a work even now to sanctify us in the truth. Instruct our hearts in what we are to believe about You and what You require of us. And Lord, we pray that You would enlighten our eyes and rejoice our hearts in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord? Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may he bless it to our hearts. Brethren, please be seated. <clears throat> Throughout Scripture, our God has a pattern of thwarting human wisdom and doing the unexpected. Why choose a 75-year-old man, Abraham, trapped in decades of idolatry to be the father of the faithful? More than that, why choose this man to be the father of a multitude when his wife is barren and well past the age of childbirth? Why have the future savior of Jacob's house, young Joseph, be attacked, be ridiculed? Was one who faces scorn and years of suffering before he's the agent of deliverance? Why choose a stammerer, Moses, to confront Pharaoh? Why take the youngest in Jesse's house to be the king of Israel? Why have the Spirit of God overshadow this young girl from a nowhere town, Nazareth, 
and make her be the one who bears the Son of God. Our God repeatedly does things that we would have never done. And brethren, as we think about that, we can look at ourselves. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, no doubt aiming to lower their high thoughts of themselves, for consider our calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Our God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. And brethren, that's strikingly clear with the sudden salvation of sadistic Saul on his way to ensnare the saints of God. And yet as Saul planned his way, the Lord established his steps. The risen Christ erupted with light and snatched Saul from his evil plot. And not only that, King Jesus sovereignly set Paul apart as a servant and gives him instructions. Humbled with three days of blindness, he's waiting to be taught what he is to do that he would live his life by the direction of Jesus Christ. Well, Saul has been liberated from the darkness in his soul in the previous passage, and now the Lord will set him free from this temporary darkness and tell him what he is. Christ's chosen servant and what he's to do, carry Jesus' name to others. Well, as we study our text, I want you to see three things with me. And we begin in verses 10 to 15 with commission. Commission. And we're going to spend a good bit of our time under this first heading. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, though as Luke has shown us the advance of the gospel, he really hasn't reported any spread of the gospel to Damascus. But clearly, there's a strong collection of believers already in the city. And among them, there is a servant of Christ, likely the preacher or evangelist in that community, Ananias. And for him, it's a special day. For to this disciple of Christ, Ananias, we're told, verse 10, the Lord said to him in a vision. Now, the Lord is the title used of the risen Christ. So just as King Jesus had appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, now King Jesus is appearing to Ananias in a vision. Now, Luke is giving us more evidence here that while the world killed Jesus, regarded Him as the scum of the earth and crucified Him, the fact is, Christ lives. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is governing the universe and everything is happening according to the will of Jesus Christ. In fact, the greatest enemy of the Gospel, Saul of Tarsus, can't throw a monkey wrench in God's great plan. For Christ is King. And the Gospel will advance even if all hell is unleashed against our Savior. In fact, the control of Christ directing the expansion of the Gospel is very evident as the Lord communicates with Ananias. In this vision, the voice of Jesus says, Ananias, and He said, Here I am, Lord. Now, that little exchange, this response to the divine voice, echoes what we've seen in the Old Testament. As the covenant God Yahweh addresses Abraham, or Jacob, or Samuel, or the prophet Isaiah. And it might seem formulaic to us. Here I am, Lord. 
But the truth is, that little response indicates submission. It indicates a readiness to do the will of God, to obey. Young Samuel, when he didn't understand that the Lord was calling him and he kept running to Eli, did you call me? Because he hadn't had a communication from God like this. He finally said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Likewise, Isaiah, after he saw the Lord seated on the throne and heard the angelic, holy, holy, holy hymn of the seraphim, and he had the touch of that burning coal from the altar to his lips to cleanse him, he said, here I am, send me. There's a readiness to do the will of God. Now, brethren, we don't live in the days of Jesus appearing to us in visions and speaking audibly. That's come to a close with the apostolic age. But this little response should indicate how our hearts interact with Jesus Christ. We hear His voice in His Word and we follow Him. We're ready to do what He asks. We believe we're bondservants of Christ and we're eager to carry out whatever commission He gives to us. Is the disposition of your heart to say, Here I am, Lord. Well, that's the posture of Ananias even though there's about to be an obstacle. And what's the obstacle? It's the man to whom Ananias is being sent. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, Ananias, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, brethren, look at the details here showing us Jesus' control over what we might regard to be minutia. Ananias is told to go to the exact street, straight street. Just so happens that this street is still a prominent east-west thoroughfare in the city of Damascus. He's told to go to a certain man's house, and his name is Judas. And then he's told what Saul of Tarsus will be doing when Ananias gets there. He is praying. That's striking. It should remind you of Jesus instructing His disciples to go get a a colt for Him to ride on. Where it's going to be, no one's ever ridden on it. Here's what people will say to you. Here's what you're to say back. Christ is governing everything. And if all that weren't enough, Ananias is also told, Saul has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. In other words, the Lord has given Saul the precise name of the man coming to restore his sight. Now, Saul is still in physical darkness at this moment, but Jesus doesn't leave him in the dark about his plan. Saul's in a state of humiliation, but Jesus is kind to instruct him that he will be set free. In fact, Jesus is reinforcing to Saul that He truly is the Lord, that He's in control, that He holds the hearts of men in His hand and He directs all things just as He appointed this humbling affliction, blindness for three days, He also will establish the end of that affliction. What a comfort it is for the people of God to know that affliction isn't haphazard in God's world. Though we may struggle at times to know the purpose of our trials, they are not pointless. And while we don't know the end of the trial, 
Christ does. He governs the beginning of the trial and He brings the relief from the trial. Furthermore, the fact that Ananias is given this vision and then told, oh, Saul has also been given a vision, well, double vision going on here, it confirms that the matter is trustworthy, that the plan of God is sure. Now, the Lord doesn't need to prove Himself to us that He is trustworthy by giving us a double vision. But His repetitions are kindnesses to us. You see, the Lord is in control and yet He stoops to meet us in our weakness, to reinforce us in our times of doubt when we're tempted to hesitate. We can see this before in the Bible when not just one dream, but two dreams were given to Pharaoh. Something about the corn and something about the cows. And then Joseph was to explain that this is signifying the years of plenty and famine. And he told Pharaoh, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. Or we can see it in Gideon and all of his weakness. He's given two signs. First, there's a wet fleece and dry ground. That wasn't enough for him. Or can you do something else? Then there was wet ground and dry fleece to confirm the purpose of God. You see, the Lord is patient to show us His will, to deal with us as children who need reinforcement in the truth. Jesus certainly would have understood from a human perspective that Ananias would not want to go find Saul. He is the enemy. But Jesus is confirming to His servant, you can trust Me. In fact, apart from the matter of control, there's a change, Ananias, that you're going to see in Saul. What is Ananias going to find Saul doing? Behold, that's a word to get your attention. Behold, he is praying. Now, of course, Saul, the Pharisee, had gone through the motions of prayer before this moment. He would have followed the regimented patterns of Pharisaic prayer. But this man truly was ignorant of God. He had never really prayed. He didn't know the Lord. You remember he asked a question when Jesus appears to him, Who are you, Lord? Saul was lost, even though he was going through the motions of religious devotion. He was praying to an idea of the true God and not the true God Himself, which is another way to say he was an idolater. Now, brethren, ponder that. We may know many people who go through the motions of religious devotion, but do they really know Christ? Are they praying in the name of Jesus to the one who hears them? Ananias, behold, he's praying. Jesus is telling Ananias what's really going on. You see, we may see a person engaged in the outward form of prayer, but only Jesus can know if a person really prays if there's true communion with Christ, an expression of humility and gratitude, thankfulness and allegiance to King Jesus. These words were to be a signal to Ananias that Saul is a new man. He's been changed. What an incredible thing to witness here, beloved. This man who but days ago, chapter 9, verse 1, was breathing out threats and murder like some hideous cobra coiling to spit at you and strike. And now he's breathing out humble petitions to King Jesus. Look at what grace can do. Grace can take a man determined to destroy and make him a humble, dependent servant on Jesus Christ. 
do you see that the gospel really brings radical transformation, giving new priorities, new desires, new patterns of life? Is that the change that we've seen in our own souls? Maybe we haven't gone from killers to servants of Christ, but have we been laid in the dust and made to live live a life of dependence upon Jesus expressed in prayer? Well, again, just as Saul is being reassured that there's an end to his affliction and he has a future directed by Christ as King, Ananias is being assured that Jesus has changed this wretch of a man and all is well. But wouldn't you know it, Ananias is not quite convinced. That initial disposition, here I am, Lord, is now hesitant, even though there's all this evidence of Jesus to control. Look at what he says, verse 13. Lord, excuse me, wait a minute. Do you know what you're doing? I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Now this tells us that Ananias, however he heard the gospel, he was not part of the group that was in Jerusalem and ran to Damascus. He didn't see Saul commit this evil. He had heard about it. The saints who had come up from Jerusalem as they were scattered everywhere told him. And they seem to have some intel. Verse 14, they know that Saul has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, a little tangent for a second. Did you catch the two descriptions of Jesus' disciples in verse 13 and verse 14? In verse 13, they are called your saints. In verse 14, they are called those who call on your name. What striking descriptions these are of the people of God. Who are we? We are Jesus' saints. Brethren, what is a saint? It's not a special class of professing people that say they know Christ who've distinguished themselves in some way. It is all of those who belong to Jesus. And what does it mean? It means a holy one. But notice the shocking possessive that's added. Your saints. Jesus' saints. What makes us saints? Is it our deeds? Are we a people who make ourselves holy so that we could earn a right to be called by the name of Christ? No, we are saints. We're holy ones because Jesus has made us His own. He's saved us. He's possessed us. He's given us the gift of righteousness when formerly we were all unrighteousness. Jesus has cleansed our sin. He's washed us with His purifying blood and brought us into fellowship with Himself. Because we're united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are brought into a position of holiness. Or to put it another way, Jesus is so identified with us as His people, His treasured possession, that He declares us holy. He declares us His. We're in a covenantal relationship like a marital union where we get Jesus' benefits. Brethren, do we deserve to get Jesus' benefits? 
Of course not. But by grace alone, the Lord is giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. And with the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts, we are set apart as holy to the Lord. That truth should move your soul, stir your affections. It should cause your will to want to live for Jesus. How could it be that Jesus Christ would love our soul and bring us into fellowship with Him and declare us holy? How could we former rebels, those blind and sit and headed to our own death, how could we be called by the name of Jesus Christ? That's amazing grace. And then believers are identified in verse 14 as those who called on your, as in Jesus' name. Doesn't this further indicate that Saul's a changed man? What's he doing? Well, he's praying, but he's calling on the name of Jesus. This is why Ananias shouldn't be afraid. Saul is doing what every disciple of Jesus does. He prays. J.C. Ryle once wrote a tract on Acts 9, verse 11, with the title, Do You Pray? Do you pray? What is the evidence that the Spirit of God lives in you? It's that you cry out, Abba, Father. We call on the name of Jesus. We seek Him. We're known as a worshiping and a praying people. Was that true of us? To be a disciple is to call on Jesus' name. So Ryle says, and listen carefully, to be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. But to be in a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks that you're truly a Christian. Because the Lord has drawn you into a relationship and you want to speak to Him. Do we have a habit of prayer? Well, amidst these glorious descriptions of the disciples, Ananias is still hesitating. He's scared. He thinks, if I go find this man Saul, it could be a suicide mission. I might as well just turn myself over to the Jerusalem goons and they can lock me up and kill me. But knowing Ananias' frame, his weakness, his fears, Jesus is being compassionate to him. Jesus doesn't interrupt. How dare you question me? He just reaffirms the word go. Don't you love that? I want you to see here, not so much Ananias' faltering and his struggle to listen to Jesus. I want you to see that the Lord bears with Ananias like He bore with Moses to repeat Himself, to call him to his task, and then He gives him more information to comfort him that you can trust the purpose of Christ. See secondly now with me. Chosen servant. Verse 15, Ananias is told again, go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine. Or more literally, but very wooden, he is a chosen vessel, or Yoda speak, that's how it is. A chosen vessel he is to me. Ananias looks at Saul in view of what he was. Jesus is looking at Saul in view of what he is by grace. And listen to how personal that is. Saul is my chosen vessel. Jesus is saying, I'm the sovereign king and I declare what a man shall be, what his calling is. And Saul is precious to me. 
He's honorable for my purposes. That's a shocking thing to say about this former hard-hearted Pharisee. But the Lord Jesus had mercy on Saul. And indeed, the language of being a chosen vessel or instrument, as the ESV puts it, will shape how Paul talks in the future about a doctrine of grace called election. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul describes God as the master potter who has complete rights over lumps of clay. And He has mercy on whom He has mercy and He hardens whom He hardens. He makes one vessel or instrument for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And it's God alone who makes men to differ that His purpose in election might stand. As Paul will say later, with his own life no doubt in mind, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Saul did not make himself a chosen vessel. Brethren, he was chosen. The Lord sovereignly showered mercy upon him. Now I know that this doctrine is offensive to many. I know that we, particularly in our self-made, independent American spirit, naturally resist the thought that we are not the determiner of our own destiny. But all I tell you to do is look at the text. He is my chosen instrument. Saul doesn't set himself apart to be a servant of Christ. He loves Jesus because Jesus loved him first. Jesus sought him. Jesus laid hold of him and arrested him in his sin and changed him. Jesus had a plan for Saul, unbeknownst to Saul, and I tell you, contrary to Saul's will. Saul was trying to kill Christians. That's what he wanted to do. And Christ changed him in a moment. And now he will do something different. He will carry Jesus' name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. If you know Christ this morning, it's only because the sovereign mercy of the Lord rescued you. It's not just true for Saul, it's true for what every Christian knows. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The Lord has selected His people. The book of Acts now is going to go on to show us the chosen instrument, Saul, taking the gospel before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And it's another evidence to us that Christ is controlling the scene. What happens is what Jesus has purposed. And the Apostle Paul later describes his own calling. One explained to him, no doubt, initially here by Ananias. He sees, Saul sees, that his will is bound to Jesus for life. He'll tell the Corinthians later that he's a man under compulsion. Woe to me if I do not preach the Gospel. Christ gave me my marching orders and that is what I'm going to do. Jesus has chosen this man and Jesus is governing his life. In no way does the future Apostle Paul see that as a burden or still less that he's some kind of robot. In fact, he delights that the hand of the Lord is upon him to make him what he is. He rejoices that he was a fool before, 
But Jesus has now chosen him to preach Christ. And in this calling to bear the name of Jesus, a calling that Paul will celebrate, Paul will have to identify with Christ in his suffering. Ananias, verse 16, tells Saul the word of the Lord, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, this suffering is not Jesus being vindictive. I'll make him suffer because he was such a lousy dude before. That's not the sense. Jesus had already taught his apostles, all of us, that the road to life is a hard road, a narrow or compressed road. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, if they persecuted me, what's going to happen? They will persecute you. And when that persecution began, like in Acts chapter 5, when the, the apostles were flogged, what did they do? They went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That will be Paul's perspective as well. He'll say to Timothy later, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then Paul will say to the Philippians that suffering is a gift. Now get this, Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for Christ's sake you should not only believe in Him, faith's a gift, but you should also suffer for Him. It's been granted to you that you should suffer for Him. Paul will come to say, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Because sufferings, brethren, purges us of the dross of sin. In our sufferings, we see afresh that this world is not our home. That is a great value of affliction to us. We don't build our nest in a tree here. We're looking for something beyond this world. In our sufferings, we learn that Jesus is sufficient for us, that He meets us in our weakness. And in our sufferings, we discover that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Though none of us will ever suffer like the Apostle Paul did, suffering teaches us to rest in Christ, to know Jesus better, to count it a joy to live for Him, and to find if we have Jesus, we have enough. That's the truth, by the way, of that verse that you probably all have memorized, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a verse for a, a football game. It's a verse expressing contentment that no matter where Jesus places me, He is enough for me. Saul of Tarsus is going to learn these lessons. And Ananias, as he conveys the message of suffering, notice again the text says, I will show him how much he must suffer. I want you to notice that little word must. It's the exact same word that Jesus used to describe how he must be betrayed and handed into the the religious leaders rejected by them, crucified, and He must on the third day rise again. Jesus' life was scripted by a divine must. As Jesus Himself would say, quoting Psalm 40, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of Your book. The decree of God ruled Jesus' life moment by moment and by moment, and that did not make Him a puppet. He carried out the sufferings ordained for him willingly. And so it will be with Saul of Tarsus. 
He's not suffering to bring redemption. That's only what Christ does. But He's suffering to experience fellowship with Jesus. I want you to see again, brethren, that suffering here isn't random. It doesn't happen to the Apostle Paul by chance. What a wretched view it would be to think that King Jesus doesn't rule our suffering. That He doesn't rule the hard things of life for us. What comfort could we possibly have in that? Oh, this horrible thing happening to me right now is not in the hands of my Savior. How then could He help me? How could He deliver me? And wouldn't that suggest that Jesus doesn't really rule? That His power is limited? And that the evil thing over which Christ isn't in control, that that could be the thing to rip me away from Christ. But I think I remember the Lord telling us in Romans 8 that He works all things together for good. If He's not in control of all things, what's He in control of? Nothing. Saul's life is mapped out by the plan of a loving Savior. And the suffering he will face will bring him nearer and nearer to Jesus. That's true for you and me as well. Our life is not the same as the Apostle Paul. Our calling is not the same as the Apostle Paul. But here's the principle. The road to receive the crown is paved with the cross. The road to receive the crown is paved with the cross. What did Jesus say? If you would be my disciple, take up the cross. You have to take up the cross as a true follower of Christ. And if you do, glory follows. Resurrection follows. This is the great commission given to this man. But then finally see with me and briefly, consecration. After being comforted that Jesus has plucked Saul for his own purpose, Ananias doesn't need to be afraid. He does what he's told. Verse 17, he departs, he enters the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, and these words should jump off the page to you, Brother Saul, what amazing words those are. And it would take grace to say them. This guy has been a Christ hater in killing the people of the family of God. But the first words Ananias says to him indicates everything has changed. Brother Saul. Friends, do you catch the significance of that? Saul, you're part of Jesus' family. And I don't know you personally, but already we are brothers. There's no hatred here. Now there will be times in the future where people are a little bit nervous about Saul of Tarsus and they withdraw from him, but not Ananias. He loves him from the start. I welcome you. I receive you as family. This is how the people of God are to interact with one another. That trite saying that occurs all over the evangelical world, brother so-and-so. That's biblical. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. And we live conscious of our connection. And then after the greeting, there's another reminder of King Jesus' sovereignty. Verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This confirms to Saul that the Damascus Road encounter was not bad pizza. 
It was not a hallucination from a certain mushroom or something. No, the Lord Jesus met you, and I'm here to confirm that truth to you. You can trust Christ. You can submit to Him. Your new Master is going to help you and equip you. And the equipping comes right here. And Ananias lays his hands on Saul. In verse 18, something like scales fail from his eyes. He will now see with new vision, spiritual vision. And not only is his sight recovered, he's filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit here is to equip him to be the chosen instrument of Christ, to carry Christ's name. How could he embark on that great task unless the Lord equipped him? Didn't Jesus Himself know the equipping of the Spirit at His baptism to enable Him to engage in His ministry? So it will be here for Saul. He's already born again, but now the, the Spirit consecrates Saul to the task at hand. Now, none of us here this morning have been given that unique calling of Saul of Tarsus, but don't we all also need the equipping power of the Spirit? Ephesians 5.18, we're all given a command. Be filled with the Spirit. We need, as a people set apart for Christ, we need the Spirit of God enabling us to die to sin and live to righteousness. We need the Spirit of God fitting us with the fruit of godliness that we would serve the Lord Jesus. And the very language both here and in Ephesians 5.18 indicates this filling requires divine action. The command is not fill yourselves. It's be filled, passive verb. The filling has to come from outside of us. We have to be acted upon and equipped. And the Lord is pleased to use means to fill us. The means here is Ananias preaching the truth to Saul. What's the means for us? It's the same means. The Lord taking His Word proclaimed to us and equipping us as we hear the Word. And now being filled up with the Spirit, Saul is baptized. An outward sign that this man is now only and always for Jesus. He pledges himself to Christ that I will serve Him because He sovereignly lay hold of me. And then Saul finally breaks his three-day fast. He's ready to take nourishment to start his new life with Jesus. Now again, there's a lot of uniqueness to Saul. The sight restored, the specific calling, the ending of a severe fast. But doesn't the whole scene raise a question for us? Having tasted and seen the grace of Jesus Christ, having been equipped with new life in Christ and enablement to serve the King, are we all ready to live for the Christ who saved us? Will we read this passage and think afresh how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. How could it be amidst all the strangers out there lost in their sin that the Lord would draw me in His grace? I was once lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And may God be pleased for the grace that He's given to us. And may it move us to want to serve Him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, You are great and merciful. Your sovereignty over all is astounding. The details over which You rule, directing all the affairs of all men and all the time. Lord, we marvel at that power on display. And Lord, we pray that seeing Your greatness 
and seeing Your grace, we might submit to You as our Lord and King and serve You faithfully. Lord, would You equip us even this very day by the means of Your Word to be ready to suffer for the name of Christ and to delight that we should serve the Lord Jesus. Help us, O Lord, to grow in love for You in view of all that You've done for us. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.